I am here with Andrew Hong, who is headmaster at Dune. We're not entirely sure what that means, but sounds fancy. Andrew, I'm so excited to have you on the pod. Yeah, excited excited to be here. Uh, you know, it's always fun to talk more about crypto. <laughs> yes, and you've gone you've gone deep down the modular stack, which I'm very excited to talk about. Um, but before we do that, maybe you can give a little bit of context on you and how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole. Yeah, um, fell down the rabbit hole. 2020 DeFi summer had nothing. Well, I was, I was at a banking job, had nothing to do with my time and um, started looking into the crypto space more. ETH Global was doing a bunch of events like Linda She, Tramp Venups, Austin Griffith were doing like webinars and stuff. They kind of got me into the space as a developer more than just like an investor. Um, I feel like crypto, like as soon as you start building anything in the space, you're like, this is a hundred times better than anything I could build in like the normal space, whether that's in finance or tech or whatever else. Um, And yeah, ever since then, just been jumping around, spent time at Consensus, spent time at Mir, um, currently at Dune Analytics, working on data infra, um, and then feel like I always have my hands in like 10 other different side things. So modular stack just happens to be the the flavor of the the last few months. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you're one of the, the sort of rare breed of people in crypto who has both built in consumer crypto at Mirror, but also has a deep understanding of, you know, data and how some of these things are ultimately going to play out based on your work at Dune and, and other things. Um, so I'm very excited to talk like the intersection of some of the infra yeah. side of things and the consumer side of things. Yep. Very few people speak both languages and you're, you're one of them. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> um, so you wrote this piece recently on the modular stack, which I'm really excited about. And, and I want to dive into a couple of specific areas there, but before we even do that, maybe it's worth giving like a broad strokes overview of what the modular stack quote unquote even means and like why it needs to exist versus what mm. we have now. Like what makes this more modular than what we have now basically? And, and what's sort of the status quo versus where we're going? <laughs> yeah. Uh, could probably spend 40 minutes just lecturing on that. Um, <laughs> but I'll start by saying, I feel like the modular stack has fallen into a pretty big branding issue where I think a lot of people, when they think of it, they think of like, oh, this is rollups. This is Arbitrum versus Starknet versus Optimism versus like Cosmos and all of like, like people get way too focused on just the chain part. I would say the chain part is really not super important. Like it doesn't matter which chain you really develop on the part of the modular stack that is interesting. Um, I think it's a few parts. I think it starts with account abstraction, which like doesn't really depend on the chain, um, but when you have account abstraction, we'll get into what does that mean and what does that look like. Um, but you basically get to build more and more logic off chain um, in a way that's like something you couldn't do before. Like apps of the few of the past with Uniswap V2 or whatever um, had to fully be built on chain, um, and you had to use like a MetaMask wallet or whatnot to like sign each transaction, wait for it to process, and it's pretty clunky and the logic is gets complex. Um, but I would say we can we can start with the account abstraction part and then slowly move down into like what is like data availability, what is ZK and like how does that make apps even stronger? But I think like the most consumer facing side is definitely on the account abstraction side. 
Yeah, I feel like account abstraction is thrown around a lot and it's rarely explained in a non-technical, easy to understand way. So let's take a stab first at that as as piece number one of the modular stack puzzle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the easiest way to explain it is like, hopefully everyone or most people listening know what a Gnosis safe is and know what a multi-signature is. Um, Essentially, the idea is you have some wallet that multiple people can sign to approve a transaction. Um, That's kind of the base I would start with with account abstraction is, okay, you have this basically co-owned wallet where you have multiple parties that can sign. Um, in traditional, like, or not traditional, but like originally in, mul- in, in multi-sig wallets, they all have to be EOAs that sign. You all have to sign with your MetaMask, you know? So the first part of abstraction is saying, hey, this signature doesn't have to be a wallet signature per se. It could be like uh, just some sort of approval from someone saying, all right, like, let's take an example with like Visa and Gnosis of like Visa is now giving you a debit card that's tied to a smart smart account, uh, which is just a safe. And if you swipe using the Visa card, you're basically approving from yourself and the Visa is going to go through their API and also send an approval. So those are the two signatures that approve you to go and pay someone, you know. But ultimately, like, smart accounts are still just a multi-sig. The signatures are starting to get abstracted. Um, and then you have the fancy bells and whistles of like, oh, Visa can also choose to pay for your transaction. You don't have to pay the gas for it. Um, there's a few other kind of optimizations like that below the hood, but <laughs> I don't know. Is that is that a high enough level explanation? Should we try to abstract it more? What do you think? Yeah, so it feels like just to sort of summarize, account abstraction is really describing um, systems basically like outside of an externally owned account, which for people who aren't familiar is basically just like an account that is controlled by a private key. Um, It's describing other logic that allows users to, um, to submit things on chain in a way that is not signing with just your EOA private key, but instead is using other types of logic to sort of create accounts, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's another way to think of it is just like, you're, it's not just a single signature thing where like you have a password, you're the only one who inputs the password. It starts to become a lot more composable, you know? So like right. even the idea I think some people throw around is like, oh, all account abstraction enables is that I can use face ID to sign into a wallet it's like, yes, you can use Face ID to sign into it, but now like there's other ways, other kinds of verification can tie in as well. It's not just the fact that we're enabling Web2 style sign-ins. You know, I think a lot of people miss that as like a feature. And I think just to ground this in a little bit of like this sort of consumer side of things, um, as we think about this in the context of, you know, the modular stack and all of that, um, ultimately it feels like this matters because it it's pretty clear that the current store your private key or your fucked system doesn't quite work. <laughs> yep. And so while there are additional benefits of account abstraction, one of them is also like you could potentially have social recovery mechanisms because yep. you're building this, this layer above this, this abstraction layer above basically your EOA. Um, and so you start to create much better user experiences because you're not relying solely on a user storing a private key or, 
a company storing a private key for a user, um, which is also kind of like a weird pattern. But instead, you introduce other types of logic that actually enable, um, you know, new types of, of account recovery mechanisms and other things that are just like probably better for end users. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, I think Argent has already kind of had social recovery for a few years, but like that's still completely EOA based. Having that, even the recovery portion not be EOA based, I think is, is, is a huge unlock. So we have account abstraction, which is sort of the way that you manage individual accounts for users yep. as one part of the modular stack. What do people do with accounts? They take actions on chain. Yep. And one of the things that you call out in this modular stack piece is that um, there's this sort of new paradigm emerging, which is that not every single action is happening um, on chain from the get go, which yep. is sort of related to account abstraction in some ways, but let's keep them just like somewhat clear in, in the distinction between them. Yep. This, this paradigm is intense, which yep. is a big buzzword, of course, right. in, and, and it's been a big buzzword for probably a year now. Um, so maybe you can give a broad overview of intense and maybe just like how, how you think about the stack and how we're moving through it from account abstraction to intense. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. All right. So probably one of the easiest ways to explain this is when you submit a transaction, um, there's basically a set of variables that you have to sign. And those are the only variables you can sign. Right. So it's stuff like I want to call this function on this contract. You know, I want to send this amount of ETH or I want to send this amount of tokens. It's like extremely deterministic. I can send those parameters and only those parameters. If I want to do something custom on top, like, oh, let me send a Uniswap order, but only when the price moves by 5%, Uniswap, like V2, only knows, hey, I want this trade order. Uniswap V2 has no idea what you mean. And there's also no way to submit this of saying, hey, only if the price moves 5%. You know, um, so that's kind of where this off-chain logic comes about. It's the ability for consumers to express preferences, like the swap only when, like, price moves. Like, if price moves down 5%, sell, basically. You know, that's logic. You could put in an intent. You can still sign, uh, but there's now this extra parameter on top that wasn't included with how transactions worked in the past, you know. Um and obviously, there has to be a bunch of info built up so that when you sign these intents, it's still somewhat decentralized and orderly. It's not just like completely like Web 2 of like, oh, yeah, I'm going to click click trade only when move 5% and then Uniswap executes and signs it for me. I'm still the one signing it, you know, so that's still a big like I think it's a little confusing to think of as like, oh, why isn't this just like Web 2? Like the important part of intents is you're still signing something. But you're just signing extra data on top with it. I think the other dynamic here that is uh, important for people who are not technical to understand is that, like, if I think in theory, I would go, okay, um, why is it that intense? Why why can't I basically submit something on chain that says if you know uni drops five percent, then sell all of my uni? Um, and I I don't know that we want to get into all of the details around it, sure, but. I think the important thing to call out is just that it's basically infeasible to store that type of data on chain, right? Like this needs to be stored off chain, at least for what seems like the foreseeable future, because it, it introduces some sort of attack vector. Yeah, I mean, I think 
technically the example I gave is still feasible per se, because you could have you could deploy a new contract that takes like the time weighted average price of Uniswap pool and then like has a function that's like you call it if if the 5% move happened, then it executes. But then now you're locked into that design space. If you want to change how that design space works of like move 5% between two tokens, you know, like I have to then go and deploy a new contract or I have to go and upgrade it. And like that just makes the developer UX and the user UX super clunky. Um, so like technically, yes, it is roundabout feasible in the old way, but it's much, much easier to design and interact with and build in this new schema. Yeah. Um, and I think this kind of brings up like an interesting way that you framed some of as as we think about, um, you know, accounts being abstracted away to, to yep. new and different types of logic um, combined with this idea of intense, which allow for this like off chain logic, which is much more efficient than like to your point, deploying a very complex contract for a very specific and like kind of um, trivial action, basically. Mm -hmm. um, what ultimately you you get to this interesting question of in this piece is basically like, what is the design space of a transaction, which I think is a really interesting framing around this stuff. Um, it feels like what this starts to pull at a little bit is this idea that the way that we do things on chain today is actually going to look kind of like wild, you know, 10 years from now yeah. when we realize how limited we were in our capabilities on chain. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious when you think about um, how intents play a role moving forward in terms of the design space of a transaction, like where does this go, you know, five years from now where we're able to store some logic off chain, have, and to be clear, execution still happens on chain. Um, but yeah, where does where does this go five years from now? What 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 does this open up? Five years. Wow. Um, yeah, let's 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 think through it. Um, I think there are two main angles that probably get enabled, I hope, within five years, hopefully sooner. Um, one angle is that intents should become composable. Um, so intents, the way they work today while you can express extra preferences, they're still mainly tied to a single DAP. Um, so like Uniswap X allows you to add intents kind of to your trades, but that only works for Uniswap X, you know, or OpenSea orders. If I sign a listing or a bid or something, um, technically it used to be it only works with OpenSea. They've built Seaport, which is probably the best example we have today of composable intents where like, Blur can still pick up the listing, um, like the signed intent, but they have to go through OpenSea's API, you know, and like if Blur wants to be able to add extra intents or preferences on top of what the OpenSea user originally signed, you can't really do that yet. Um, so ideally, intents become composable between apps and you can start building things like that easier. Um, the other part that I think gets interesting is stuff like um, scoring, which is, I think, one of the examples I give in the article. Like, if we take an example of NFT auctions, um, which <laughs> used to be really hot if you're in the space a year or two ago, um, I don't think I've heard of like a wild NFT auction in a while, but it used to be. I have a thousand NFTs I want to auction out, and the community has to go and basically try and mint them. Um, and you end up bidding up the gas cost, which is basically like, how willing are you to pay to make sure that your transaction 
like happens before someone else's transaction, which is important if there's only a thousand NFTs to mint and there's like a hundred thousand people trying to mint it. Um, in the past, you had to just deal with like Ethereum's gas system of like, oh, well, like people are going to pay this extra gas is going to go to miners or validators or whatnot. The artists aren't benefiting and like the users aren't benefiting. Um, but with Intense, you could start having like a scoring system externally that says, hey, I want to give priority to the people who have been like active in our discord or to the people who have like actively not flipped NFT, like flipped our collection before. Um, and you can kind of have a scoring system that orders these intents before that intent ordering gets to the normal transaction ordering. Um, so you kind of have more fun systems like that where you can design this in a way that is actually not possible at all in the current um, like blockchain design space. So those are that's really yeah, that's really interesting. OK, so I, I'm going to pair this back to you because I feel like for anyone who hasn't thought about order flow, this is probably also a little bit of like a yeah. mind fuck. Um, so for context, when a user submits an intent, it goes into sort of its own little mempool of sorts. And if you aren't familiar, mempools where transactions go before they're bundled and added to like the Ethereum blockchain, which is a very much a simplified version of it. But that's basically what happens. Um, similarly, intents go to their own little versions of a mempool. So like Uniswap X intents, for example, when users submit them, um, goes to its own little mempool of sorts. Those transactions are then, they then go through this RFP system, um, or RFQ system, which is probably even too in the weeds, but like basically at some point in time, those transactions are, um, taken by this set of providers and submitted on chain. Um, and an important part of submitting anything on chain is that you decide uh, what order you want those transactions to happen in. For people who aren't familiar with it, this is also where like MEV stuff comes in, which is how can you order transactions in a way that actually allows you to potentially make money? And there are all these weird things. But an interesting dynamic that I totally had not thought about is this dynamic around, okay, User intents are one thing. There's exciting stuff going on there. But actually, there's also a lot of design space in the ability to order those intents on the side of the providers, which is to say, if you are Uniswap and you and they are not doing this with Uniswap X, but we'll just say this is the case. If you do have users who you want to give a better price and you decide like these people are, you know, have a better reputation within the Uniswap X system, um, being able to order them in priority is a really interesting sort of um, it's almost like a like a um, reputation primitive, weirdly. Um, no. And it starts to get into some interesting questions for me about what does it mean to have um, basically like off-chain subjectivity mixed yep. with on-chain quote-unquote objectivity in the sense that like when something is on-chain, it feels like it's true and valid and, you know, I don't know, yep. there, there's much less of this like ARB opportunity basically. Um, but when you have things that are off chain, you kind of, it's kind of a black box, or at least it's maybe that's not even the right way to put it. Maybe it's just like a more flexible space. Um, but I'm curious how you think about that dynamic, because it does feel like it starts to introduce a little bit of weirdness around like, is the chain the source of truth anymore yep. when you don't know what was happening off chain? Yes. Uh, yeah, I have a, <laughs> a simple answer here. I think it makes things easier and more intuitive for the users 
but it makes things extremely complicated and unintuitive for like if you're an info provider or even a developer, I think, um, because, yes, you don't have just a single source of truth of like I'm checking for X transaction hash to have been confirmed and I can check it in context of all these other transaction hashes. You don't have that anymore. Um, I think for the user, it's a lot more intuitive for them to be like, oh, yeah, I minted and I got my place in the mint because of my score versus like if you look at the Artblocks discord during any mint or basically any discord during any mint, <laughs> everyone is complaining and like throwing like rocks at the devs, blaming the devs like they have no idea how gas were. I wrote like a long post and shared it with the Artblocks community like in 2020 or 2021. And like all the people are like, get out of here. I don't want to read that, you know, so I think it becomes intuitive for the users. Uh, but for people like like me working at Dune, if I have to now explain this data to someone and I don't have that like sequencing or reputation based component and I have to go and ask Artblocks to upload it for me. Yes, that makes my life a lot harder, um, but it's a trade off. Yeah, and, and I think this gets into one of the more interesting elements of intents, and I even think to a degree account abstraction faces this, but we'll set that aside for now, yep. um, which is this notion of intents are really exciting. They add a ton of design space to what's possible for transactions and, frankly, like what's possible for user experience in the space. The downside of that is that when we say off-chain, what we really mean is centralized, and no one seems to be talking about that. Mm. Um, and so I'm curious how you're thinking about that element of things. Yeah, that's hard. Um, I have been talking to teams about this. I think for some apps like like Uniswap or CowSwap or whatnot, like they are going to build like a gossip network. They're going to build a node network so that you can still get this data and participate in it. Um, even if you aren't Uniswap, it's not going to look like a blockchain. So like, yes, you can have a node network without a blockchain. That's kind of what databases are to begin with. Um, so some places will have that. Will every single app have that? Like if I run, if I'm a game developer and I build like RuneScape, um and i need things to move really really quick um maybe yeah maybe for those it stays centralized um and there's nothing users can really do to force things to be otherwise um so i think there is some risk there um but i people don't don't burn me for this but like i am in the party of like if we can provide a cleaner ux and adoption through that kind of system I personally, if it's for a video game, am okay with some layer of centralization in like the action part of things. You know, like let's say I'm playing like Magic the Gathering on chain. Maybe I can't really check how my games were played, but like I know that my cards are still NFTs. And if I wanted to, I could port those out and still sell them even without knowing what happens inside the centralized layer. So I think it's like... Does that make sense? There's like components to it where like some components, components, yes, I really care. Some other ones, it's like, all right, worst case scenario, I still have my NFTs. So. Yeah, I feel like this is getting at what intents ultimately are balancing, which is basically they're saying things that do not need to be on chain, like the logic for how we're going to execute this, for example, or even in the example of being able to potentially build a more complex contract in the example of like if uni drops by 5%, then sell. 
Yes, it's possible to build these things on chain, but they're minimizing the amount of um, unnecessary complexity on chain, basically. And I think the important thing here is also that like these things are still being settled on chain. Ultimately, you still have the outcome of your transaction. You just don't entirely know how it got there, which is probably the case for users anyway. I would be curious, like, so so in the example of, like, if uni drops by this amount, whatever, um, again, there's a way that you can build that on chain. My current mental model is basically, like, you what you want to make sure of is that people can do, take the action that they, the desired action that they want to take on chain um, themselves directly. They can directly submit a transaction to the Ethereum mempool. Um, but if they want to, they can basically opt into this intent-based system. And this is very much like what Uniswap currently does with Uniswap X, where if you want to take advantage of an intent-based architecture where you have gasless transactions and you might actually end up getting a better rate, you yep. can use Uniswap X. If you are worried about like censorship, for example, then you can use Uniswap. Um, yep. And I guess just to call out like censorship there specifically refers to se- potentially being censored by Uniswap X itself, which is kind Correct. of the potential threat. Um, yep. Anyway, I say all of that to say, in the example of an NFT being minted, what becomes interesting about a more complex design space for intents is like, is it even possible if you're not using an intense based system, let's use art blocks as the example here, if they are using intents for, uh, for transaction ordering in or, or ordering of, of individual mints, um, like, is there a world where we evolve where basically you can only interact with smart contracts if you're doing it through intents? Um, yep. because that to me is where things get a little bit scarier because it's basically like That's forced right. use to use of a centralized provider versus like optional opt in use of a centralized provider. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I could definitely, I think in the art blocks example, yes, you would only be able to mint through intense. Um, but like, how do I put this? Like we already like. Collections like Artblocks already have like whitelist mechanisms and like you already have yeah. airdrop lists and whatnot. Like there are already centralized ways of how this is done. Um, this is just like with intents, you don't have to do just like, a oh, I'm going to collect this list beforehand and these are the only ones you could mint. There's at least a chance that some people who maybe wouldn't have gone on that list like can still mint because like with the intent based system, I could have 10,000 people try to mint still. You know, versus like, I think we actually do see this, like some NFT collections say, hey, I'm going to allow these thousand people to mint. And there's like a hundred something people who like never even mint it, you know. Um, So, again, everything's a balance. Yes, if you centralize things so that you can only go through intents, there probably is a censorship like risk to it. And I think that's like really still not really widely understood at all. Um I don't really have any like mature understanding of like, how do we get around that? But I think people like to build, they're going to go and build it and then figure it out. <laughs> I, I trust the community of developers to figure this out. They're going to build it and yeah. then eventually get slapped by the CFTC. And then yeah. we'll be like, oh shit, censorship is a problem in these systems. Right. Um, and then we build backwards and it's like, okay, like, like, put it this way, we can always go back to just the contract-based way of doing things. This is not, like, a one-way, like, path of, like, oh, if we do intense, we can never go back to inter- interacting, 
using like EOAs and contracts like that feature is never going away, you know, so there's at least that saving grace of sorts. Yeah, it is kind of interesting because when you think about it in that way, when you think about, okay, we could take intents to, you know, the the most mature version of it, of, of implementation, um, it, it is kind of like a mental shift where you realize how early, I can't say how early we are because that's just so bad, but where you realize how um, immature our current ways of doing things are. Like, I think it will probably be that five years from now, it will be very bizarre that we submitted transactions in the way that we do and that we went directly to the mempool and that we didn't have these more sophisticated yep. ways of like order flow and, you know, um, interacting with the chain with actual parameters instead of just being like, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I think it's going to be really interesting um, in a few years to think back to how we're interacting on chain now. And, and I think we'll have like this weird shift. Um it is that so that feels true to me. The other side of this that feels true to me is that everyone is sick of the sort of like intense as a buzzword. And I'm I would be curious to hear your take on on why. Like, is it yeah, I'd be curious to hear your take on like the sort of I don't want to say bear case for intense, but like it does mm. seem like people are sick of hearing about it or talking about it. And I would be curious why you think that is. <laughs> That's a good question. Um I think this gets to back get gets back to like what you were saying at the very start of like what happens when we have all this extra complexity that we have to now deal with. Um, I think you get this with all communities and developers. The first reaction to some big change or some added complexity is pretty much almost always negative. People like when things get simple. People don't like when you're like, hey, there's this whole new thing that's exciting, but you have to go and read like 20 more documents. You have to learn to develop Maybe with a few new packages, you have to learn to interact in a whole new way. Um, there's just always going to be this like incumbent negative response to it. Like it's how banks re re like look at crypto, you know, like it's kind of a weird analogy. But like, I think you have that in like smaller in a smaller sense with like a reaction to intense. Um, that's my way of understanding it. I think the other thing, again, it's branding Intents are way too closely branded with MEV. Uh, like it's like modular stack is too closely branded with like blockchains and like intents are way too branded with MEV. And it's really hard once people make that association um, again, because like you have people like Paradigm who like have a lot of mindshare and they go tweet about something and like it's really tied to like the stuff the Flashbots team is doing. Like it's really hard to break that branding once people make that connection. Um, I kind of tried to do it in my article. I don't think it really hit for a lot of people. Like, I think a lot of people still just see intense. They're like, oh, this is MEV. Or like, even at the Artblocks example, they're like, that's still MEV. And I'm like, no, <laughs> it's not. I don't know how to convince you it's not. Uh, but I don't know. That's, that's what I think about the, the negative reaction to it. Yeah, I think this is also why it, it's felt pretty inaccessible for people who are not highly technical or don't want to go read a bunch of That's a very good word technical for it. writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which is a bummer because, like, to me, and I would be curious if this aligns with how you think about it. I think we've talked briefly about it. But to me, like, one of the things that's most compelling about Intense is, first, I think the shift in what's possible in the design space for transactions but what that what what a transaction really is is an activity that you're doing on chain and so yeah. like anything where we're we're adding space to what's possible and unlocking sort of net new types of interactions i think is exciting 
But the other thing that I think is interesting here is that Uniswap and other protocols that are open source, I think um, it's still pretty unclear exactly where their moat lies. I mean, for Uniswap, it's pretty clear that liquidity is a big part of it. Um, but beyond liquidity, like the defensible moat question still feels pretty important in crypto. And like, I know people don't like to talk about defensible moats because it's so like VC and whatever, but mm -hmm. it's important that we build sustainable protocols that can actually like continue to, to exist, you know, decades from now. Yep. Um, and I think one of the things that most excited me about intense is they are a very interesting mechanism for building a moat for some of these protocols, which is to say Uniswap X, if they have, if they, if they are basically the place where everyone goes to submit intents for swaps, yep. well, then they start to build this moat around that network that other, uh, that, that basically they, they own in a way. I don't know. I think there's like a really interesting protocol moat angle here for intents that mm. I wish was a, a more accessible concept so that people could start to put this together. Because I think from both a, you know, protocol sustainability perspective, but also from like, a, you know, just new paradigm type of perspective, intents are really, really interesting. And a lot of people just don't have access to be able to even talk about these things to recognize that, which is a bummer. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the moats conversation is basically taboo. Like, I think no one, no one I talk to at Uniswap will even remotely come close to saying, yes, we're going to build this into a moat. Um, I think, yeah, there, there's definitely a big opportunity there. Um, I think you kind of see people making moves for it, like even in the NFT space, I think like you see more and more intent pools, like Reservoir even has their own kind of intent pool now, and they're not even really a, like a crypto market, like an NFT marketplace. Um I don't really know where the moat forms. I think, as you were saying, like the moat right now is really just liquidity. Um, like, even thinking through the Uniswap example, like even if they build out Uniswap X to be really, really good, someone could still have, like, someone could still fight for Uniswap's liquidity and force Uniswap to route Uniswap X through that new liquid pool. Um, in that case, it's like, yes, Uniswap X has a front end moat per se. Um, but they don't have the liquidity moat anymore. And like, I think this is something they realize, which is why with Uniswap, do they call it V4? With like their whole hooks thing, they're mm -hmm. building like the V4 to fight for liquidity and they're building Uniswap X to fight for the front end side. Um, so I think those two modes will always be separate, but I, I don't, I don't really know what form it takes. <laughs> um, yeah. it's hard. I don't know. Yeah. And for people who aren't, Super clear on this. So the way that Uniswap X works is that you, as a user, submit an intent. They basically make that order or intent available to this network of providers. That order could be routed through potentially any DEX, AMM type of, of um, no. mechanism. It doesn't have to be Uniswap. So yeah, to your point, like there are really two modes going on there. One is liquidity for Uniswap, the protocol, the AMM. Um, and which they're pushing hooks to try to hopefully like create hold the liquidity as a moat thing. And then yeah. on the Uniswap X side, because users are submitting intents there, um, that would hopefully be their moat. I think this gets to a really interesting dynamic, at least in my eyes, which is that in this example of Uniswap X winning, right? And most users, when they swap going to Uniswap X, 
the intense living within Uniswap system, um, that sort of gets you to the point where you say, okay, um, maybe front ends are basically um, their moats are effectively like distribution moats in the sense that they are the ones that users go to to discover, quote unquote, um, essentially like which which uh, they, they basically discover liquidity, which is a weird way to put it. But like wherever your order gets routed is going to be the best price. And so you're using the Uniswap X mechanism as your like price discovery sort of um, or best price discovery would be another way to put it. Um, I think that dynamic is fascinating in the sense that it sort of adds a new layer to how we think about moats in crypto. I don't I don't know that we've fully seen front ends as a moat uh, win yet because they they couldn't without off-chain infrastructure. And I think that's what intents really start to to boil down to is that like, okay, if you can store stuff off-chain, then it actually is true that front ends can can hold moats um, because they are effectively their their real moat lies in what they're storing off-chain. Um which I don't know if you would include that in the modular stack as like a dynamic, but it certainly starts to feel like it's starting to feel like that might be what what ends up playing out, at least in the short term, which I would imagine is like one to five years. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that all makes sense. Um, I think it's interesting, right, because I think the only other example you really have of this is what like DeFi Llama kind of did with their aggregator where they like worked really hard to make the latency really low for checking prices across all these different APIs and pools and whatnot. Um, essentially, you get into like data as a moat as well in a way that it wasn't before. Like Uniswap X, to your, like, to your point, it's like an aggregation and discovery layer, um, not just for like sending liquidity, but like seeing all the possible kinds of prices for all the possible sizes of orders and number of tokens. Um, so data data is going to play a, a bigger role, and I think we're going to see slightly more complex front ends than just put token A to token B and estimated price. Um, so it's interesting, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, it, it also kind of reminds me like I've I've on the this is totally a different uh, like domain, but it weirdly reminds me of it, which is that the dynamic between discovery and the flywheel that that creates with distribution in Web2 platforms, which is to say that by aggregating a ton of, for example, users on TikTok all together into this very addictive little loop, you have people who want to create content, which then you allow their content to get discovered more easily uh, okay. and that creates more and more people going in. In a similar way, it feels like if you're taking advantage of off-chain infrastructure where you want everyone to be aggregating in the same place because that might provide efficiencies, for example, Seaport, I think this is the case for, um, you start to see these interesting flywheels that I don't think we've quite unlocked in Web3 yet, but that exist in Web2, which is this relationship between like discovery, distribution, and like aggregation where you basically just have more and more people who want to be it on a certain platform or within a certain network because that is where they're going to have optimal discoverability. And so then you have more people, so your distribution grows. Um, and I feel like we haven't quite been able to take full advantage of those loops yet, particularly at the protocol level. Um, I guess in some ways we have, like Uniswap kind of has that, but like 
LPing is very different from using Uniswap. Whereas this is like a similar sort of cycle where liquidity of intents, which is to say high volumes of intents, actually could potentially give rise to better, um, you know, order routing or pricing or whatever. Um, And you could even treat it like an order book if you wanted to ultimately, which then gives rise to more people coming on. So there's an interesting growth loop going on there that I think is quite rare in Web3 that maybe intents uniquely unlock. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's not the right way of thinking about it. Maybe Maybe there are other examples of those things being on chain. I'm curious if that resonates or makes any sense. Oh man. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's definitely a deep rabbit hole. I think, I think I get what you're getting at um, in terms of like today, even if, even if liquidity is mainly provided to Uniswap per se, like the places that people trade on, like there's still like, you could swap through your wallet. You could swap through Uniswap. You could swap through one inch. You could swap through the zero X interface. You could swap just from command line or whatnot. There's no need for you to go to one place to do things, um, which is not what you're used to in web two. Like in web two, like if you like add money to your bank or something, you have to go to chase to interact with it. You can't go to any other place. And because of that, Chase can now throw extra things at you, like lending, like credit scores, like Zelle and whatnot. Um, and in that case, yes, you do get a lot more distribution. And that's something that crypto apps maybe haven't had to deal with yet. Um, I think we can probably push it a step further and saying, like, you can now also get the distribution on other apps, right? Because, like, Uniswap doesn't just own the distribution for Uniswap now. They also own the distribution for one inch, for zero X and for whatever other products are out there. Um, and I think like this is something you never saw in Web2 social of like, I think Patreon wanted to do this in terms of like they wanted open access to YouTube's API, Facebook's API, Twitter's API, like everyone's API so that on their Patreon page, you could see a feed of just everything that's happening, you know, but we never got to that in Web2 because like all these apps wanted to own distribution for their own content didn't want anyone else to own it and you only get distribution for your own content. Um, so we're now very far down that rabbit hole. Um, but like, I think, yeah, distribution like that, because of what you're saying of aggregation, um, it, it could be evolved to be a lot more than anything we ever saw in web two. So. Yeah. And, and it does seem like there might be a little bit of like a battle for the front end in the sense that like, yeah, in, in a similar way, frankly, to what has happened in Web 2, though, yeah, Web 3's composability and some of the modularity stuff unlocks a lot more. But yeah. we'll see. Yeah, I think we, I know, I mean, it's a constant bundling and unbundling. I think you can see this even with Farcast. Like, Farcast is probably the best example of this now, of like, yes, they have a level of aggregation for discovery and distribution, and it started with just the Warpcast app, but now, like, APIs have been built by companies like Nanar so that people build, like, Farcord, which is basically a reskin of Farcaster, but as Discord, you know? Um, and, like, that already reopens up the distribution layer. Like, technically, Farcaster still owns the distribution, but the important part to own is not the front end. It's just the basically the pre-distribution of it with the API. I don't know. It's I think that interaction will get weird as well. Um, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> Lots Whether of you want to own the protocol or the front end is definitely like something that seems open ended. And I think 
the the TLDR of some of this is that intents complicate that by a lot because it makes yeah. the front end a lot more valuable than it used to be because yep. you're no longer just routing all value to a protocol and sort of not really understanding how to capture value on the front end. That was the status quo. I think now with intense, it's actually quite clear how you might be able to capture value on the front end, which is by having users submit intense. You own the intense pool as the front end. You could potentially take a fee. Like you could do a lot of different things there that would yep. be beneficial to you as a front end. And so it's actually becoming a little bit less clear whether or not you want to be the, the protocol or the front end. And of course, the answer is probably yes, you want to be both or one or the other. And there are benefits and it depends as all, you know, anything you think about <laughs> more deeply. It's never binary. But like, I do think it's fascinating how intense is going to change this dynamic. And um, yeah, we'll see. It, it feels like the modular stack adds complexity in a way that I'm very excited about it opens up new opportunities yeah yeah no it's it's a lot it's a lot and we've only we've only covered the front side of it basically like account abstraction intense is just like this is the stuff you can build before like the blockchain now we haven't even <laughs> i don't even know i don't know if we'll get to it today but there's everything like that's enhancing blockchains that's like uh, the design space just just goes boom yeah let's so. okay so before we wrap let's give a very brief introduction to everything else in the modular stack um like a little brief overview yeah, so we yeah, have like a, yeah a let's teaser. let's let's walk through it a teaser if you will yes yeah yeah so let's see the two big parts coming in the later part of the modular stack one is called data availability which i think we're now learning to call it data publishing which is a much better word than data availability it's just the idea of hey Blocks right now are basically only like one megabyte or something in size. What if we've made that three megabytes or bigger? Um, that makes things not only cheaper to use, but also faster. Um, and then you have on the deep, deep end, you have zero knowledge proofs, uh, which is this idea of like something like WorldCoin of like, I can prove my identity is real on chain without revealing who I am. You know, um, that brings in this whole world of like, both like private data on chain, but also like uh, machine learning becomes much, much more powerful on chain. Like right now, everything like Aave or Compound, the way they take risks and balance risks on chain is like Gauntlet does some like calculations and whatnot. Gauntlet is like a risk analysis provider. Um, they'll calculate your risk of a certain token and then say, hey, arbitrarily, let's just set this at, we're capping it at, 100k like comp tokens or something that's the maximum here because that's the maximum risk you can take send it through a governance proposal it has to be approved each time um if we have an ml model or something that's strong enough um we could just use zk proofs to basically automate a lot of that risk um and like start expanding the the ways that you can manage these protocols um so those two they get a lot more complex they probably mostly apply to DeFi apps right now. I don't think they apply to other consumer apps right now, um, but they'll slowly evolve to affect other consumer apps too. Yeah, I'm very excited to see the modular stack start to impact actual consumer experiences. I think, um, of yep. course, you could you could count like Uniswap as um, DeFi, but I also think to some degree Uniswap is is a pretty like strong consumer application. Yeah. Um, and so I think we're already starting to see it. 
but yeah, I'm very yeah, excited yeah. to see more of this. And also like Farcaster has definitely been playing around with a lot of the, these dynamics around um, front end versus protocol and, and off chain versus yeah. on chain stuff. So I'm very excited to see how this evolves. Maybe we'll have to do a follow up episode on the back half of the the stack. But Andrew, yeah. this was a wonderful conversation. I so appreciate you making these things way more accessible than other people, than most of the of conversation course. space actually is. Um, yeah. Where can people learn more about you and read your writing and all of the things? Yeah, uh, best place is follow me on Twitter at Andrew Hong 5297 um, or also follow me on Farcaster, which is my handles Alemi, which is I-L-E-M-I, um, casting a lot more there. I also write a newsletter, web3datadgens.substack.com. Um, that's a lot more technical writing, but like I try to write it in an accessible way, like everything from the modular stack to staking or account abstraction, all of that. Um, it's, it's still more technical blog, but I try to explain things pretty clearly. Uh, Which so you yeah. do a great job of. I will, I will plus one the, the accessibility piece. <laughs> I appreciate um, it. Lots of good diagrams as well, so... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very bullish. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so wonderful. Yeah. Thank you, Chase. Take care.